Hey everyone, Shreya here. This summer, we are going to revisit the best of Core I Am. We have loved listening to these episodes again and learned something new each time, and we hope you do too. And as we gear up for the new year of episodes, we are welcoming talented, hardworking members. So reach out if you have skills in website design, graphic design, want to help write, produce episode. And with that, cue the intro. This is Shreya. July is upon us. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to do a fun episode on July stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. For listeners from other countries, July is a month of transitions for many new interns, new residents, new fellows, new attendings, maybe even new nurses. So I put a call out on Twitter and had the hard job of picking six July stories that were called in that you're about to hear. This month, like any transition, brings up a whole array of emotions, experiences that are straight up funny to deeply of struggle and uh, of time of reflection. For some of us in July, there's this transition from a short white coat to a long white coat. And Dr. Hadas Reichen, attending at Gouvenier Clinic, recalls a pretty humbling story about her first day with that new long white coat. When I was a sub-intern, my residents always emphasized that it was really important to find time during the day to eat and to drink and to go to the bathroom and that you really had to make sure that you prioritized yourself in doing these kind of basic acts of self-care. On July 1st, I put on my long white coat for the first time. And I was really proud of myself. I looked in the mirror with my long white coat and felt really ready for the day. I went into the hospital. It was really a busy day um, where I was running around taking care of patients. But towards the middle of the day, I told myself, okay, I'm going to prioritize myself and I'm going to find time to pee. And so, of course, it took me a while to find the bathroom, but I finally did. (laughs) And I was really glad and proud of myself that even on July 1st, I was finding time to care for myself and go to the bathroom. Um, And so I go inside with my new white coat and I sit down to use the bathroom and the entire back of my white coat falls into the toilet. And so my memory of July 1st, while I learned a lot about medicine and a lot about caring for patients, I also learned that it is very hard to keep a white coat clean and dry while using the bathroom. Picturing young Dr. Reich being so eager to make sure she took that pee break and somehow something ends up in the toilet just exemplifies no matter how much we try to prepare, sometimes there's only so much in our control and things will go awry at some point. Dr. Mark Katzman, a third-year resident in Philadelphia, also found himself in a little bit of a conundrum on one of his first days at a new hospital and can now laugh about it. Um, So it's my first day on service, going down the list, seeing all my patients, and, you know, get to um, Mr. Jackson. I mean, that's not his name. You know, it was was something very different just for HIPAA reasons. But um, I'm seeing Mr. Jackson or Johnson or something like that. And I looked just, you know, checked down on my list, uh, looked down, see what he, I wrote down for why he was in the hospital. And, uh, you know, he came in for epididymitis, 
also had some scrotal cellulitis. Go in, talking to him, and he tells me, you know, I'm talking about his symptoms. He says, no, 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 no. My scrotum feels great. No pain, no discharge. Everything's tip-top shape. You know, motion to him. Ask him to examine him. Sure. Move the blanket over. Look at his scrotum. It looks great. Like, it looks, com- like, amazing compared to the sign-out that I got from the intern that I was taken over for. Um, and I'm, you know, updating, you know, you cover him up. We're talking again, tell him about the plan, update him to do some oral antibiotics, maybe start thinking about getting him out of the hospital. And this whole, this whole conversation, um, by the way, he's like in terribly hard of hearing and he refuses to wear hearing aids. So I'm kind of, I'm not yelling at him, but like I'm, I'm talking at quite a loud, uh, volume. So I'm just kind of like screaming at him, you know, like your testicles look great. <laughs> and without, with, Without skipping a beat, he he just looks back at me and says, like, thanks, but what about my pneumonia? Um, and, like, <laughs> right at that, like, mortifying moment, I realized I mixed up, like, Mr. Johnson and Mr. Jackson. They were, like, next up on my list, and I think their rooms were, like, 321 and 312, and I must have had, like, a dyslexic moment or something. And I swear I must have walked out of that room uh, uh, after that, and every nurse was staring at me down the hall, just, like, wondering, like, who, what, why is he asking about that? Um, and even the next day I went back and the patient was like, oh, no, my cough is great. Um, but don't worry, doc, my testicles are also in tip top shape. And it was just something I can laugh about now. I mean, in the moment, just like mortifying. But it really reminds me just like looking back that during residency and especially during intern year, we all make mistakes. It's inevitable. But the biggest mistake that you can really make is not learning from them. And I really hope that anyone who's listening can learn from my experience um, and realize that if I can make it through not only intern year, but residency, that they certainly can too. Mistakes are inevitable. And oftentimes it's nurses who save our butts at the end of the day. So I really wanted to get nursing perspective on July. Ashley, a registered nurse in a large teaching hospital in New England, honestly shared her experience in July. There are a lot of memes about July. If you go on any nursing Instagram account, like there's the Game of Thrones one that's like, brace yourself, July is coming. Um, and there's, there's a lot of them. And I myself am guilty of sharing them because some of them are very funny. But Ashley also recalls when she was a new nurse in July. When I actually was a brand new nurse, I started uh, in July at the same time as one of our CT surgery residents. And we were both on night shift. And we are trying to get this woman's heparin to be therapeutic. And then the INR was off. So I went and I told her, I was like, the INR is off, the PTT is off. Like, what do you want to change it to? And she asked me, she was like, well, what do you want to change it to? And I said, I don't know. I'm a new nurse. And she said, I don't know. I'm a new doctor. And now that she's been a registered nurse for a few years, I was really surprised to hear that she actually finds usually two extreme types of residents in July. I think that what I've realized over the past couple years is that the most successful residents were the ones who really like utilized their interdisciplinary coworkers because no one really expects them to know everything on their first day. There's the two different types. There's even the people that are like the first residents that I, I talked about. He was like, listen, I, I really have never seen this and it's a little scary. Like, can you walk me through it? But then there's also the ones that are like, okay, like I'm the doctor. I need to make the calls. Like, here's my decision. Like, they feel like if they waver on their decision, that's a sign of weakness. Instead of having an open communication about why are we doing this instead of that, like, did you consider doing this instead? They think that's like, okay, no, I need to be firm in my decision. That way I'm not showing that I don't know what I'm doing. Because then how are they supposed to trust me? 
Ashley points out that there's a lot of complexity that can go into asking for help. Thoughts of, will they think of me as weak? How will anyone trust me? I think this doubt is especially hard because sometimes other members on the team might be dealing with their own transition. And Dr. Lakshman Swamy uh, talks to us about his first year as a pulmonary critical care fellow at Boston University. I really appreciated his honesty with his July story. Um, He admits that he had to check his own imposter syndrome as a first-year fellow because it actually might have had a negative impact on his team. It's really interesting thinking about July and the starting of my fellowship and those kind of initial months. Uh, It feels like there's a lot more expected of me than than I have than I have sort of uh, in my brain. Um, and so there was this bit of sort of typical July, you know, imposter syndrome, the sense that, oh, I don't, you know, I don't belong here. I don't know enough to be here. And it's interesting because for me, uh, this time it really took on a different spin. And I, and I had felt this different kind of imposter syndrome, but this time it was really different. And I, it took me a while to realize what was happening. You know, I had felt so much like, you know, there's so much that I don't know, uh, that, that, sense of being an imposter, that I assumed that anything I did know was just as obvious as could be, right? If I knew it, it must be that really everyone knows it. And it's amazing how that kind of shot me. uh, I was kind of shooting myself in the foot. So, for example, I would be teaching or something or be on rounds or something, be in clinic and in the ICU, and someone would do something or say something where I was like, wait, wait, you don't know that? And Instead of kind of the good teacher that I want to be, kind of encouraging psychological safety and being able to say things, I would be shocked that this really obvious thing, because, I mean, if I knew it, everyone must know it, was kind of missing from this person. And um, it, it led me to kind of really want to have different opinions of people that, that were probably way, way exaggerated, right? So, so for example, someone was using the, the Respimat Spiriva, so it's, it's just an, it's a different kind of inhaler. But it doesn't get used with a um, with an aerochamber, right? With like a with a with a plastic tube device that you would use for like a, a meter dose inhaler, like Simbacord or Albuterol or something, right? So, so basically, someone had been had told patients to um, put the Spiriva in the in the aerochamber, which is not how it's supposed to be used, but also kind of. Not that surprising you step back because we do so little inhaler teaching, but I was just kind of like, oh my God, how could that, how could you do that? Like, how could you think that? Um, and in a sort of really classic way, I was like, if you don't know this, what else don't you know, right? And, and so I realized after that, that was, I was doing that a, like for a lot of things that, again, to me were really basic and really obvious, but certainly not the case to anyone else. And it, I was actually, then being so overly confident about things in when I was on rounds in the unit or something like, oh, well, of course, this person's asthmatic, so we don't want to um, overvent, like we don't raise the respiratory rate too much on the vent, move on, right? That's so obvious. Things I knew that it squashed that opportunity to kind of ask questions a little bit. I don't think, I'm not trying to say this was some really dramatic, obvious thing. I think it was still a pretty pretty good experience for everyone involved. We have a pretty good culture, but I certainly noticed it. And I noticed it later when I when it sort of clicked that, oh, I am doing this thing where I'm actually kind of perpetuating some of these problems and uh, actually making other people feel like uh, like they're the imposters and it's exactly what I don't want to be doing. I need to be building psychological safety. And so I thought that was kind of a, it, you know, just opened a whole, whole new, um, opened my eyes up to kind of, wow, I didn't even realize I was sort of acting like this. 
I did kind of have those reflections about people. And then I really kind of put it into perspective after the fact. Yeah, I've been there too. I've had to catch myself with quick judgments thinking, whoa, this person doesn't know the workup of anemia. And kind of step back and say, hey, I'm not here to judge. I'm here to teach. I'm here to be compassionate, not just in July, but, you know, all year. And I think until hearing Dr. Lakshman Swami, I hadn't really reflected on these knee-jerk judgments. And maybe were they a way to validate myself and escape my own imposter syndrome? So this can all lead to condescending tones and remarks that can really feed into a culture where people don't feel comfortable asking for help. Dr. Joel Toff, a nephrologist in Detroit, found himself struggling when he didn't ask for help and shared a pretty vulnerable July story. I'm one of the old guys. I graduated medical school in 1995, and that's an important year, right? Because 1995 is the peak of the HIV epidemic. And uh, so that 50,000 people in the United States died of HIV in 1995, and that's, my inter- my, that's the year that I started internship. And uh, in July, my very first rotation was the ICU. And we got called down for a patient in septic shock down to the ER. And so I go with my senior and it's, uh, it's horrible. Like we admit the patient and moments after we admit him, he codes and we try to resuscitate him for a couple of hours and we fail to resuscitate him and this patient dies. And, um, and, you know, I didn't know, you know, it was was the first couple of weeks of residency and I didn't know how to do stuff and, you know, whatever, whatever my senior asked me to do. I would do. And if I didn't know how to do it, I'd be say, I say, well, I don't know how to do that. Right. And can you, can you teach me, teach me once and then I'll be able to do that. And I was really focused on the physical hard skills. I don't know how to put in a triple lumen. I don't know how to do an intubation. I don't know how to write CPAP orders, but there's, there's these soft skills that you also don't know how to do, but it's harder to identify not knowing how to do that. And um, and they asked me to tell the family that this person had died. And this patient uh, was a trans patient. He had male genitalia, and he had, but he had female breasts. And I never got to talk to this person, right? Like, as soon as I met him, they coded. And I have no idea what pronouns they wanted. And I had no idea what relationship they had with his family. And, um, and they asked me to go in and tell the family that this person died and I mucked it all up. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't figure out what the relationship of everybody in the room was to the to the patient. And, you know, there's some things that you only get to do once, right? And I, I, you know, it was a, it was a, it was not a proud moment for me. And, you know, I wish that I had had the confidence at that moment to say, hey, I'm not comfortable doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. Do you mind if I watch you so I know how to do it better next time? And just because it's not a hard skill and it's something you feel like you should be able to do, you know, as an adult, it's okay to say, hey, I've not done this before and this is important. Dr. Toff's sobering story reminds me of just how humbling these transitions can be. And the majority of the learning that comes with these new roles can't often be found in medical textbooks. And I think as educators, colleagues, and interdisciplinary team members for each other, we can really make a big difference and and teach each other a lot. And our last July story exemplifies just that. Dr. Kimberly Manning, a general internist at Emory, tells us a story 
of an unexpected night in the ICU of something that made a really big difference. So I pretty much spent 75% of that time feeling terrified that I would harm somebody and another 10% of the time, you know, feeling um, grateful that I had not harmed anybody. And the rest of the 15%, I think if I have the math right, I pretty much was just trying to stay under the radar and not get in anybody's way and trying to just prepare because when I'm scared, um, as a medical student, that's what always worked for me. Or in any setting where I'm scared, I just try to know more. I try to read more. I try to learn more. But out for me was uh, the, the one person on the team, our fellow, who I'll call Shobana, just seemed always to have everything together and seemed so confident all the time. I really admired her and liked to be next to her, but didn't want her to ever get so close to me that she could see um, how, you know, maybe inadequate that I was. So we jumped right into the call. Um, we got a good sign out and an admission started coming in and she gave me great supervised instruction. And though I was really scared, things mostly were going okay. And um, as our admissions quieted down and were tucked in, um, we were sitting in the in the unit and it was like three o'clock in the morning. And um, I remember it so vividly because Despite all the stuff that was happening in the unit, Shobana was so calm. She was sitting there eating up a pomegranate. And I remember she was like tapping the seeds into her hand and popping the seeds into her mouth and talking to me. And she looks up at me and says, you're doing a really good job, Kimberly. You know that I'm enjoying working with you. And, you know, again, my imposter syndrome said she likes you. You have good social skills. You're friendly. You smile a lot. That's why. She said, you work really hard. I like the way you take care of patients. I like the way you talk to your patients. But why do you apologize so much? And and I didn't, I said, excuse me? She's like, "You everything you say, you say it and then you say sorry. I ask you something, you answer, and if I correct you, you say sorry. You're here to learn. You're not supposed to know everything. And I don't know what it was about, maybe it was the pomegranate. <laughs> maybe it was how the informal way she was sitting in the chair. but. I felt psychologically safe, and I, I just told her I was terrified. I was so, so, move me. I was so scared to hurt somebody. I just didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't feel like I knew what I was doing. Um, but, I, but she was right. I was a hard worker, and I did have a high regard for what I was doing, enough to be honest about what I did know and what I didn't know, but I felt like I was in over my head all the time. And... She started to reflect back to me what she'd seen. She said, you know the patient. You talk to the nurses about your patients when you come in. You read. You, you ask questions about the, to the respiratory therapist. And, and you're really, you're, you're really moving in the right direction. And you need to stop apologizing so much. You deserve to be here. And I said, I don't know how to feel like, like I know what I'm doing. And she said, I don't always feel like I know what I'm doing, but what you got to do is you got to be a lion, Kimberly. You got to be a lion. And I was like, a what? She said, be a lion. You got to stand up with your head forward and, and, and you just have to, to, to stand up on behalf of your patients as their spokesperson and be a lion. And she didn't really expound much more on that, but then she kind of jumps up out of the chair and says, you know what? Let's round on your patients. And it was three in the morning. So she puts down a pomegranate, and we start walking around this intensive care unit at 3 a.m. with the lights dimmed. And 
I'm presenting my patients and instead of asking me questions about, you know, what, what is this or acid-based disturbance questions, she would tell me to stand up taller. She would talk to me about the cadence of my voice. Um, she would tell me to hold my paper differently and would just even, she, she even showed me how to say I didn't know. You know what, I, I'm not sure about that, but here's what I do know. Or to take time to think about what I did know because maybe I did know it. And she didn't tell me any evidence-based medicine or anything. But what she taught me how to do was to see myself as enough in that setting and that I was there to learn and that it was really, truly okay um, for me to be scared. And if anything, it was a way of honoring my patients that I felt scared. She said, I think you're honoring your patients that you feel afraid. Um, You should always feel a little bit afraid. And, you know, so years later, you know, when I think about that, um, I've, I've paid that forward a lot. You know, I've told particularly women residents, underrepresented minority residents about, you know, just sometimes you have to just show up and be a lion. When Dr. Manning and I were talking off air, she spoke about how this fellow kind of stepped in her space and in a very short period of time did something she called transformative for her career. The fellow could have gone to bed, but she stayed up 30 more minutes and little did this fellow know the impact it would leave on Dr. Manning. And I can't help but be moved by her pep talk. Be a lion. And and that is what I tell myself, even today, 18 years later on, well, not 18 years later from that, even more, 23 years from that, as a faculty member, when I'm asked to do something, if I'm doing a visiting professorship, that little voice comes into me again. And I tell myself, I coach myself, I'm like, be a lion in your own way. And the best part of that lyric is that it just says, keep trying. You know, it's not that you have to even fake it. You can try, though. You can just show up and try your best. And that, you know, that moment, I think, it shapes the way I interact with learners who are new. It's why I enjoy learners who are new, faculty who are new in a new role. Um, But it also is just, you know, proof that we don't have to have it all figured out all the time. I kid you not. But since recording this, I have told myself, be a lion, just keep trying. Before almost every important meeting, difficult day in the hospital, it's been so powerful. It's just one of the many things I've taken away from hearing these wide array of stories. And I hope everyone listening can be a little bit more compassionate to each other, a little bit more understanding to each other, especially for those going through these transitions, maybe feel a little bit less alone in the struggle or or laugh at yourself if your white coat ends up a little bit in the toilet, knowing that someone else might have gone through it too. Thank you so much for listening, and a very big thank you to all the people who told their stories. We will link their contact in the show notes. Please share this episode with colleagues as they're about to embark on a new transition. And as stories roll in this coming July, send them our way. We would love to hear them. And if they're really good July stories, we can maybe record it on air for next July. Email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. And if you enjoy listening to our show, give us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And let's continue the conversation over social media. What stories moved you? Which July stories could you really relate to? Tweet us or find us on Instagram at Podcast or Facebook at CoreIM. Good luck, everyone, in July, and let's continue the conversation. Take care.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.